Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. As usual, today we'll be continuing our series through the Marxist lens with Professor Clyde Barrow. Listeners, this is a little preview before we get to uh, the regular show. There was a subsequent event uh, a day or two after we recorded the podcast you're about to hear with Clyde Barrow, and that was um, in the New York Times, a report in the New York Times on March 9th. It's about the Louisville uh, police rife with abuse, Justice Department says. So basically, the Justice Department conducted a, a, an inquiry into the Breonna Taylor killing and the entire Louisville Police Department. And, um, you know, they came out and they found out that there was, uh, you know, beat, police beatings, killings, uh, served as a reminder of this function of the law enforcement agencies. The Justice Department is also investigating similar complaints about discrimination in Minneapolis, New York, Oklahoma City, Mount Vernon, New York, uh, Phoenix, Worcester, Massachusetts, and the entire state of Louisiana. Um, you know, basically, we all know the story. The police are are, are pretty are pretty brutal. Um, the Kristen Clark, the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights uh, at the Justice Department, said that uh, the targeting of Black people for traffic stops and searches turned conventional law enforcement practices into weapons of oppression submission and fear i've been aware of this for a while i'm sure we all have been uh in uh, june of uh, 2020 uh, i wrote of scumbags breonna taylor and michael flynn all about how donald trump was screaming and yelling about the fbi lying uh in the michael flynn case and in his case he couldn't believe that the fbi would lie they were quote scumbags according to him for uh, you know breaking the law and lying to him and it was just so obvious to me that, uh, you know, the police have been lying about everything. They perjured themselves getting search warrants. That's been proven now by the Justice Department. They testified to what happened in arrest confrontations. They lie about that. They lie about how they obtained evidence and every other aspect of arrest trial and even sentencing the police will lie. They always lie. This is this is what they do. Everybody knows this. There isn't a policeman or a district attorney or a defense attorney that doesn't know this. But we want to find out why this is happening. And I think you're going to hear something that you just haven't heard anywhere else before. There's a man, Clyde Barrow, through the Marxist lens, who's going to explain that all of this police brutality, all this oppression, all these killings, all these arrests, all this brutality is not some random or, or uh, off the cuff or fly by night operation. It is systematically baked into basically capitalism and its need to suppress the underclass for whatever reason, Clyde will. Listeners, we're doing a little blast from the past here. We've got back a superstar Clyde Barrow that we did about 14 or 15 through the Marxist Lenses podcast with uh, about a year ago. I love them. I love talking to Clyde. We really covered the, the, the waterfront, looking at American politics, culture, and the economy through the Marxist lens. He was very, very insightful, and I learned a whole lot. But the other day, unfortunately, reading all about Tyree Nichols and his his brutal death at the hands of the Memphis police force, and then the subsequent articles that have come out about that, I sort of had an out-of-body experience because I went back to, in my mind, a podcast that we did where Clyde talked about how the French aristocracy enlisted the lumpen proletariat to put down the bourgeoisie in the French Commune Revolution. In other words, um, how is it that uh, the underclass became, I think, words like 
a reactionary tool or something of the overclass. They were able to do that. Well, since that time, you know, there've been four, maybe 50 articles, but I've read four really interesting articles about trying to analyze the, the, the death of Tyree Nichols, especially at the hands of, you know, minority members, black policemen that kicked him and killed him. Uh, there's one in the National Review by Rachel Liu, uh, the one by, in Politico by uh, Jesus A. Rodriguez, one in the Wall Street Journal by the opinion writers, and just a few days ago, one in the New York Times by Christina Beltran. And every one of them is trying to explain to us why and how this happened. It's, it's no longer what I grew up with, Bull Connor at the courthouse door, uh, kicking and beating Black people to death. Uh, then, of course, I grew up with Rodney King. I actually was in Los Angeles, witnessed the riots regarding Rodney King, Rodney's fatal beating at the hands of white police officers. Of course, there was George Floyd, and we all know about that, that murder. Eric Gardner in New York City. So we're always used to framing everything in terms of a white uh, on black repression, a racist repression. And all of a sudden, we have something new. We have this. And everybody's trying to explain it. Uh, the militarization of the police crosses boundaries. Black people can be can be brutalized. Uh, all police are racist. That's what that that's what that was a theory uh, in, in one of the articles. All police are racist. Doesn't matter if you're black or white. But that doesn't satisfy me. There's something more powerful than that. And I needed to call Clyde Barrow and ask him. So Clyde, let us hear the Marxist perspective on how and why a man like Tyree Nichols was beaten to death by fellow black men. Yeah, well, it is a very interesting, complicated question. And I'll give you a Marxist perspective on this. I don't know if, if it's the only one. Uh, but I think one of the reasons that the mainstream media, as well as what I would call liberal pundits, uh, find it so difficult to grapple with an issue like this uh, is because they fundamentally view racism as, as an attitudinal issue. It's a question of subjective perspectives and, and attitudes. And so the idea from that, that perspective is that, you know, racism is therefore an attitude that white people hold towards blacks or toward other peoples of color. And so then they find themselves in a quandary when they, they confront the situation of black police officers beating to death uh, a young black man and say, well, the theory doesn't work anymore because how could blacks be racist against blacks? And I would say that there's a fundamental flaw in that understanding of racism. And really the first people I think to try to, to get a handle on that were really two of the uh, the originators of the Black Power Movement in the 1960s, and that was Charles Hamilton and Stokely Carmichael. Uh, those are the two of the people who introduced the concept now of, of what we call structural racism or institutional racism. And it is the idea that racism is not simply or, or most importantly an, ad, uh, uh, an issue of individual attitudes, it's a structure. It, it is institutionalized, in how we organize our institutions, our society, uh, how we structure things, uh, and that the structures of what determine the individuals and, and what they do. And I'll just give you a simple example uh, of what I'm talking about. You know, I will frequently read in the newspaper about a CEO, you know, who's laid off 10,000 people from their company and they'll be talking how agonizing and difficult it was uh, that they can't sleep at night because of what they've had to do. And, and I don't doubt that that's true, that subjectively in terms of their individual attitudes, they found it very distasteful and difficult and heartbreaking to have to do that. 
but they did it, right? They did it nevertheless because their role in the structure of the corporation requires them to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Their job as a CEO is to maximize profits for stockholders, and consequently, they find themselves necessarily doing things that you could sort of view it as playing out a script. They have a role to play within that structure, and so they do it. Uh, and this is what the great sociologist C. Wright Mills once called structural immorality. Mm -hmm. Good people do bad things because of their position in society. They are essentially agents of the structure that determines their behavior. Uh, and, and that's one way to look at that. And so, you know, that would lead me then to talking about uh, who are police, you know, aside from individuals, what are they as an institution? And here I'll really draw on probably one of the greatest uh, Marxist theorists of the capital state of, of the last century, and that's Nico Palantzis, the, the Greco-French uh, political theorist. And he has develops a concept that we would refer to as the repressive state apparatus. And he says, basically, what is the role of the state? And fundamentally, the, the, what he calls the general maintenance function or the role of the state is to reproduce the existing social order in which a ruling class is able to expropriate profits uh, from the working class. And consequently, you know, when we think of it then, what is the state apparatus or what is the repressive apparatus? One of the things he would call our attention to is that, you know, it's not this series of independent, discrete institutions. It is a network of organizations that function toward common purpose. It's the police are certainly the front lines of this repressive apparatus, but it's surveillance mechanisms. You know, it's cameras on street corners. It's the judicial system, the courts, the parole system, the prison system, and, and we could go on. You know, the immigration system, these are all designed fundamentally and primarily to monitor you could say, the working class, uh, to monitor and maintain, quote, law and order, uh, which is effectively to preserve and protect the, not just the property uh, of those who own it, the means of production, but to maintain the stability of the existing social system in which a, a ruling class is able to rule over and exploit the working class. And that's the function of the police. So when I you know, go back to my example of the CEO, the police have a function. They have a role to play within this system, and it doesn't matter what their race or gender may be, or even what their class origins may be, once they are inside that apparatus, it is their responsibility and requirement to do what that job requires them. And if you think of it at a theoretical level, they'll say, well, my job's to catch criminals. Well, at a theoretical level, your job is to actually reproduce and maintain the stability of the capitalist system. Uh, and that's what they do. But I think that alone doesn't capture it because I think there's another component to this. You know, we can't ignore the issue of race in, in favor only class. And here too, I think there's a, a really wonderful uh, political scientist, political theorist who, who I don't think gets the attention that he deserves outside of circles like, except maybe Black Lives Matter. And that's the late Cedric Robinson who taught at the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara for many, many years. You know, he wrote a, a, a great book that's now in his third edition called Black Marxism. Uh, and he is the person who really invented and introduced us to the concept that now called racial capitalism. Uh, one of his critiques of Marxist theory, which I think was right on, 
was that Marx himself and all subsequent white European and Marxists had ignored was that it wasn't just class exploitation that was at the core of, of capitalism, but that race was embedded at the very core of capitalism. And his argument was, if you go back to the origins of capitalism in the early to mid 1600s, from its inception as a world system, it has always relied on sort of the hyper exploitation and political oppression of people of color from you know, the export of slaves to the new world, uh, to peonage and indentured servitude in Latin America and the United States, uh, to colonialism and neocolonialism in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And so his argument was, and, and I think is quite accurate, yeah. is that capitalism is not just a system of class exploitation, but it relies on racial exploitation and that the, the political oppression of people of color, Blacks in particular in the United States, is built into the very structure of the capitalist system. So when you talk about the role of the state and the role of the police as maintaining and reproducing that system, a very important component of that function is the reproduction of racial hierarchies and racial exploitation and domination. And it doesn't matter who you put that uniform on, that's their job. There, there, there's a very chilling scene um, in the movie Till uh, that I, I saw a few, uh, recently. Um, it turns out that there were, they called them colored in time and in the movie, colored men that um, helped kidnap uh, Emmett Till, helped torture him and helped kill and help bury and put his body in the river. Um, and this was this came out at trial. Uh, it was it was seen by some of the eyewitnesses, um, it, it, and it was shocking. But it, it, this is not new. This sort of ability of the uh, where you're talking about the capitalist overclass to enlist um, functionaries, and now they're called the police to repress those people. It's not that hard to do if you're running a society. I mean, you had slave overseers, you know, during the, during the, in, in, in the Southern plantation, you always had, um, well, in fact, in Africa, you know, you actually had you know, tribal kidnappers bringing, you know, inter slaves to the coast for sale. So you've always had going back to the day one, you know, a, a biracial, multiracial exploitation of other people, by people of the same color. And so it, it, we can't really say that this, this death of Tyree Nichols uh, is, is a new phenomenon. It really isn't, is it? No, it's not new. In fact, I'm sure you know that, you know, in the United States, uh, African-Americans had a term for it. It's called Uncle Tom's. Yeah, I do know that. Yes. Right. But so that goes back to the pre-Civil War period. So, you know, there's always been an element of collusion and a knowledge that there were certain people, you know, there was always the old conflict between the so-called house slave and the field yep. slave yep. Uh, in, in terms of their loyalty to the master and their willingness to serve them. And, uh, and, and you can see it, you know, on another dimension, you know, where I live in South Texas, you just look at the uh, ethnic composition of the Border Patrol. It's predominantly Mexican-Americans yeah. monitoring and policing Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Uh, you know, and I have in that regard, the personal experience with it because of our students at the university. But, you know, hearkening back to what you mentioned, you know, Marx's analysis of this uh, in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte and his class struggles in France, his analysis of how the so-called lumpen proletariat had been enlisted uh, to put down the revolutions of 1848, and it, it was a, a longstanding thing throughout Europe. But, you know, you can see it here. As you take somebody 
from a poor background, you give them the opportunity uh, to have a, a what is a, actually an excellent, well-paying job. Yes. With pensions and benefits, you give them a badge, gun, and a uniform, and, and authority, uh, and basically better life chances and status than they ever thought possible. They are going to be loyal to the state that gave them those things. They are indebted to the state for those things, and they will serve the state, and they will fulfill its responsibilities and its functions. Uh, and that's why Marx referred to the lumpen proletariat uh, as bribe tools of reaction, even though in terms of their economic circumstances, they should have been on the other side, uh, but they could be bought. And I can tell you, you know, even here, looking, you, know, you see these things in the newspapers all the time, for example, you know, the Border Patrol is just one example, having to constantly lower its standards of recruitment because yes. it has so many needs. Well, where is it recruiting? I mean, recruiting from the lumpen proletariat. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. So yes. It, it very much is sort of a reenactment, you know, as Marx also wrote, in, in that particular book, uh, if I can, I'll have to paraphrase it. I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something to the effect that uh, uh, history—the first time history is a tragedy, the second time it's a farce. Yeah. Uh, but but it it plays itself out over and over again in the same patterns. You know that leads me to something too that, that I want to say here. When we talk about systemic or institutional racism, we say. Well, this is an effect of a system. This is an effect of a structure. It's not a rogue cop. It's not a bad person that if we could just remove them, it yeah. would all go away. The bad apple theory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of the ways you know something is systemic is when there is a pattern that continually repeats itself again and again and again. Absolutely. And we know what the pattern is. Uh, an unarmed black male gets stopped for no reason. Uh, gets beaten, is told to come, and one of the things we saw with the Tyree Nichols in it, was told to comply with orders he had already complied with, or that it's impossible to comply exactly. with. Told to get on the ground, he's already on the ground. You know, told to put his hands behind his back, his hands are already handcuffed behind his back. Uh, what exactly do you want me to do? And then telling them that he's in distress, being ignored, and ending up either injured or killed, uh, and when you see, in the, the important thing for me as a political theorist becomes uh, the pattern. When you see the same pattern over and over and over again, it's being generated by a system. It's being generated by a yes. network of institutions. And this kind of leads us to the issue, of, well, what are you going to do about it? And again, the difference between kind of a Marxist and a, a liberal solution is, you know, the liberals are, well, we just need to train the police better, or we just need to get rid of the bad apples and recruit better. And what we're saying, it doesn't matter who you put there. The pattern's going to repeat itself because the system generates that effect, regardless of the individuals. So you have to change the system. Okay. Okay. But you help me here. Um, the, everything you said is always makes total sense, except I don't understand, honestly, the excess involved. I mean, I get that the police are tools of repression and in an illogical way. I mean, when I think back of the marijuana arrests uh, that went on in this country for decades of a musician in you know, New York in 1954, they arrested these great jazz musicians for smoking a joint. I mean, the, it's so illogical, the repression, gays and lesbians, like who cares? You know, I mean, does that really threaten the state? 
So there's so much of this that's illogical from a capitalist point of view. It seems like such a waste of time. In fact, the hilariousness is that the uber capitalists, like the Koch brothers, have been working on prison reform and trying to get people out of jail you know, because yeah. they think it doesn't make any capitalist sense to throw all these people in jail. It's too expensive. So well, I, I well, really remember capitalism <laughs> is a system of contradictions. It's oh, not, oh, okay. it, it's not always rational, but also don't All forget right. that part of it is about instilling fear. You know, it's not necessarily about the person who's the target of the violence. It's about everyone else who sees it, hears about it, and knows about it and comes to understand that I don't want to become that person. So I'm just going to do what I'm told or I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to cause trouble. That's so, smart. Right. It, it, it's that's true. Ripple. That's that. That's why every black parent has a sit down conversation with their black children about what to do when the police stop them. Yeah, absolutely. OK, uh, absolutely. But still, let's go back to this. Not because I was making a little light of it. It's not that funny. Where does the brutality we, we, we in all these cases, the Rodney King tape and my God, that was so long ago shot on a video. I think I don't even know what it was not a cell phone. They didn't even have cell phones then. What? Why? Where does the 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 brutality in the in the George Floyd in the yeah. Eric Gardner, um, the 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 Breonna Taylor, all these things are these so excessive? It doesn't make cap. Why does capitalism degenerate into this sort of thing? You'd think the capitalists would say this doesn't look good. This isn't a really good patina for capitalism. I mean, we don't need this. We don't need to. We could have just arrested him nicely or something. Or why do we have to kill him and you know show everybody how 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 indifferent we were and et cetera. I, I really yeah. don't understand this. Is it a pathology that capitalism generates or is it just this, a few bad apples? Where does this come from? Well, there are multiple layers to it, I think. I'll, I'll start at the kind of the most macro level possible and kind of work my way down a little bit. Um, you know, I think most political scientists would agree uh, on a definition of, quote, the state uh, that was proposed originally by a German sociologist, Max Weber. And that is the definition of the state. The state is a human community which controls a monopoly on the legitimate use of organized violence. That's what the state is. Uh, and its power and authority ultimately rests on its ability to exert that violence, which it occasionally has to do to send the message that the state's here and the state's real and, and you will pay the price for it. Now, in this particular case, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and you know, I think I have read this, that this was actually the outcome of, of, of a new sort of policing strategy yes. that's being adopted scorpion, in a lot of the urban scorpion centers. scorpion unit, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where they have these scorpion units whose sole purpose is basically to go out and hunt people down and look for trouble, right? That's their mission, is to go out and find people that they think are a problem. And, you know, and when, again, to use my structural notion is if that's your mission, if that's the task yeah. you've been given, you're going to find that trouble or you will make that trouble yeah. because that's the task you've been given. Okay, next. That's That makes total sense uh, on a structural basis. But you were going to say two or three other well, I, I think, comments you know, about this? Is, you know, and we, we see this all the time, you know, adrenaline is, you know, one of the things that even uh, the police chief and others have commented on in, in the city was, 
you know, the, the effect that, you know, you got this sort of feeding, feeding frenzy going, which sort of self-legitimates itself. Well, if he's doing it, I'll do it. Or if it's okay for him to do it, I'll do it. But that in the background, there were people with cameras, including police, who stood there and watched it and did nothing. There's where you start to get to the level of individual accountability and responsibility. And I think, you know, that many people have raised the issue here that one of the things that makes this possible is this notion of qualified immunity, right? Yeah. A police can do anything, anything, including killing a person, and they are not legally culpable, at least at a civil level, maybe criminally, but at a civil level. You know, if there is a financial settlement uh, with Tyree Nichols family, yeah. it's the taxpayers of the city who are going to pay that, not the <laughs> officers who committed the crime. I know. They just settled with the protesters in New York who were protesting on the... They $25 million settlement to 21,000 to every protester that was rounded up and beaten and gassed by the New York yeah. City police. It comes out of the taxpayer budget. Not, yeah. There's no reduction in their salaries. There's no. No, it's, it's beyond belief. It, 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 it's almost Kafka-esque in its, in its insanity that the police can go on a riot and then the taxpayers have to pay the, the, the victims of that riot. You know, it, you can't even make this up if you tried. Yeah. Well, and a similar issue there that's related to that is this idea that, and, you know, somebody who's been found guilty of some type of misconduct just goes over to the next city and gets a job again. You know, there's no kind of prohibition on once you've done this, you're out, right? You're out of law enforcement. You can't go back. And, you know, there've been talks about a national registry or yeah. some kind of thing to sort of root this out. And, you know, that's, that's a step in the right direction. Uh, but yeah, there. But but this is an, again an example of kind of the institutions and structures, qualified immunity, the lack of prohibitions on getting a new job in the same area. That that there are you know, short of you know abolishing capitalism, which I think is what a Marxist would want. There are institutional and structural reforms that can be adopted that would at least mitigate and hopefully reduce some of this problem. Well, they, they, they seem to be, don't they? I mean, it does seem that capitalism could certainly reform itself. I mean, we don't have, we have like basically, I don't know, 14 or 18 states have legalized marijuana, mm -hmm. uh, more in the works, if not maybe even be more states. I mean, that, you know, a penalty that could have landed you in jail for, you know, 25 years or something in some of these states uh, for simple possession of marijuana is now being sold by the state authorized outlets. So, um, all the rules about you know sodomy and 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 gay sex and all the other you know nonsense that 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 they incarcerated people for and beat them up and and jailed them and ruined their lives that's all gone by the wayside. Um, so how does it that how, yeah how does that happen that capitalism wakes up and and says um, this is ridiculous and we have to reform itself and and change the laws so drastically regarding things like um, gay and gay sex and marijuana and mm -hmm. and other drugs. Well, you know, I, I would consider at least the issue of marijuana kind of a, a, a minor thing, but it's, uh, you know, as a system of contradictions, I think when when the system itself seems to be threatened with destabilization, uh, or at least when political and corporate elites perceive it as being threatened with destabilization, yeah. they will make reforms and concessions uh, in order to try to restore stability of the order as a whole. To preserve the entire system, yeah. Uh, in it, to preserve the entire system, uh, and I think you're starting to see that. I mean, because with George Floyd, you know, we have seen the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we have seen a lot of, of new social movements start to emerge that that have become larger and larger. So, 
I, I think there is pressure, but you know, to me, true reform only happens uh, even within the framework of capitalism when you have large scale social movements of the type that we were seeing, you know, a year or two ago with Black Lives Matter, where there were like hundreds of thousands of people yes, in the streets they all really over were. the country, coast yes. to coast. That's what catches the attention of corporate and political elites, because most of us don't have enough money to make a difference in their donor to their donor class. So what we have are numbers, the, the power of numbers and physical presence. So now that we do you think we're going to as a society or culture move on from this idea that it is black on white racism that uh, is oppressive and is are we ready for a Marxist analysis of this now? I mean, I will say that the New York Times article by Christina Beltran um, law about the law enforcement industry, she never mentioned the word Marx or Marxism or anything like that, but she really did do a good job in outlining that this was an institution, we have an institutional repression state that goes way beyond any one individual. And just what you said, these are good jobs. They want these jobs. They have security. They have a pension. You know, they're protected by, protected by all sorts of governmental laws. They can't be fired at will. Um, and they're happy, you know, the underclass is happy to sign up for these repressive uh, frontline roles, if you will. Um, do we, are, where do, what's the intelligentsia going to say now that, that it is, that they've seen the black on black um, uh, murder of, uh, of Tyree Nichols? Where does this go? Yeah, well, I don't necessarily think it turns every liberal into a Marxist, uh, <laughs> but, but as you pointed out, I think it, it is, is it is such a flagrant contradiction to traditional liberal understanding of racism that I think it does start to change the conversation. And as you point out, people like Christina Beltran, who does wonderful work, uh, you know, we start to think more in terms of institutional and, and structural racism. Certainly Black Lives Matter has always been thinking in those terms and, and putting that idea out there. And they've also been adopting the notion of racial capitalism. So they've been embedding that idea in a larger kind of theoretical analysis of, of the entire capitalist system. So I think those kinds of movements do in fact start to restructure how people think about events. And you know, you don't even have to, to, to say the word Marx or know any Marxist jargon to be one uh, or to end up at the same kinds of conclusions. But uh, yeah, I think those are the kinds of events that, that start to force people to rethink their understanding of the problem on a, on a larger scale. Right. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm always in a state of shock that um, capitalism is so inept at, um, shall we say, image control, you know, that it, 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 it does things, it seems to me so gratuitously stupid that you just really wonder who's in charge. You know, I mean, like, I, if you want to have a capitalist society, you want to maintain control of your money, you want to make sure the 1% control 60% of the wealth in the United States, you want to keep the, the, the capital gains, you know, low, you, you have all these goals and objectives, you want to live in a really nice, safe neighborhood. I get all that. You know, yeah. but it just seems that they 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 go about this in such an awkwardly stupid way, not in an efficient, intelligent way, with all of this incredible racial disparity and all this violence and all these ridiculous repressive laws and rules. It 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 and the, now the culture wars, which are definitely part of this, where the capitalists look like they really want to distract everybody uh, with with worrying about um, uh, transgender bathrooms and. 
Uh, well, even the liberals want to do that. I shouldn't say, you know, that that's, that seems like everybody's obsessed about who's going to the bathroom where. Um, it, it just seems like an odd thing for a sideshow. Um, what did Marx say about why would capitalism devolve into the, like a, a freak show on the sideshow when the real issues are so large about wages and economic disparity? And now what we have, we have this Dickensian situation where kids have been found out to be working in um, in, in industrial plants and in slaughterhouses. Like, here we go back to Bleak House. Yeah, well, if you want to know what Marx said about it, you go back and read the 18th Brumaire, where he describes Louis Bonaparte the Third as basically a, a clown and a buffoon, uh, in terms that were very reminiscent and uh, comparable to how many people talk about Donald Trump. But what I really want to emphasize, and this is where I always kind of go back to a person like a C. Wright Mills or even a Charles Beard before him, is that we'll talk about capitalism as a system because it is. We also have to remember that it is a system that has to be managed and steered by someone. You know, here's a ruling class. And we should never, you know, assign them some type of superhuman mental capabilities because <laughs> the reality is they're no smarter than anybody else and they make dumb decisions and bad decisions and irrational um, decisions. I mean, we had the most flagrant example of that imaginable in our last president. Yeah. Uh, good so, you so know, true. Don't, don't think that just because somebody's rich, they're smart. You know? That's so true. I do. I do think that. I think that, okay, you're the, I do think that it's really interesting. They bake that into my little feeble brain. I do believe that like the ruling class, the one percenters, you know, the corporate elite or whatever should be much, much more intelligent. But of course I see that actually they don't really want to do that. What they really want to do is actually emulate the morons. I mean, the two things that have come out that have really fascinated me in the last five or seven years is the hilariousness that if we put more women in the in the Congress, we would have a more compassionate, better society. And that is the funniest that we have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lorraine Brobbitt. We have lunatics. The craziest people in running our government right now are women. And that we were yeah. supposed to have a softer, nicer, more gentle, more intelligent thing if we elected women. And of course, the aristocracy always said, well, go to Yale, go to Harvard, and you'll be really, you know, in, in a rational, intelligent, lovely human being. And of course, we have Ron DeSantis and Josh Hawley, you know, Ivy League graduates. And that, Ted Cruz. That, 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 well, you can't make this up. Yeah, it's, you know, again, you go back to this notion of structure. You know, this is kind of an example. Marxists use in the classroom all the time. Uh, when they're sort of engaging in debates about, you know, identity politics and that kinds of thing. And I just always say, you know, imagine a, a world in of capitalism where every board of directors and CEO positions were perfectly equitably distributed on the basis of race, gender, ethnicity, and any other category you want. You haven't changed the fundamental structure of capitalism. The reality remains that the vast majority of people, white, black, men, women, any other category under you are being exploited by the system. Uh, and so you put different faces on the ruling class, but you haven't changed the underlying structure of the capitalist system, nor its dynamics. And the same applies to the state and to political office. So it, it, it really is a, a more complex issue is that my favorite, one of my very, very favorite books is George Orwell's Animal Farm. Mm -hmm. And I once wrote an article that said, you know, Trump's administration was more like Animal Farm than 1984. This is when everybody was worried about, you know, his becoming a, a very intelligent fascist. Um, 
Is that what Orwell, this is a little bit of a aside, listeners, but is that what Orwell saw when, when he wrote Animal Farm, that, that it didn't matter who was there, that the, the pigs could morph into, you know, the, the, the ruling class and start, you know, exploiting the workers just as badly as, as, as Farmer Jones? Yeah, well, you know, that one was, th that book was really a critique of Stalin and Stalin. Yeah. Pig Napoleon and Stalin, and he was kind of poking fun at Soviet communism, okay. of which he was very critical. But 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 it is kind of goes to the, the, the idea that uh, and basically the point is you put communists in charge of capitalist state, they're gonna act just like a capitalist <laughs> capitalist state. Right. Not okay. gonna change. Okay. I guess you've enlightened us. It's it, it, we we're gonna watch now and see how the how everybody tries to deal with this shocking event, uh, the unfortunate murder of Tyree Nichols and 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 what happened there and uh and uh, how this is going to, you know, change the, everybody's view of race and capitalism and oppression and society, where we go from here. I, I don't know. Will there be some sort of big systemic reform or is this just going to go on forever? I think right now you'll see a lot of hand wringing, some lawsuits, and it'll happen again. <laughs> okay. It'll happen again. Well, I thank you for coming out of uh, out of out of uh, your sabbatical. Um, yes. And, and doing this this, this wonderful, um, uh, enlightening uh, podcast on, on this very interesting issue. And believe me, uh, you can listeners, you can read a lot of intelligent analysis about this. I don't think I don't know where you'd read it, but I don't think you'll ever understand or see it from a Marxist perspective. That just doesn't seem to be uh, what our little economy and our little society wants to uh, expose you to. Um, but it's a good perspective and I think uh, worth listening to. Thank you so much again, Clyde. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Listeners, thanks again for tuning into Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at OOTB with jrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, OOTB with jrusso. Listeners, Believe it or not, we're on Instagram. Please follow us at OOTB with Jay Russo on Instagram. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.